Amen. Amen. We love life change around here. Those were videos from our June baptism. We were able to baptize over 200 people who were proclaiming and publicly declaring that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. And that never gets old around here. That's why we do what we do every weekend and every week. And so uh, we're going to show those and, and, and as long as we can. Like, that's the goal of what we're doing. Hey, I'm Pastor Ryan uh, Stone. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. If we haven't met yet, then uh, we'll have that opportunity at the end of the service. Uh, we have a lot of work to do today. Before we do that, though, I need to introduce you uh, to a new member of our staff family. And um, I need to introduce you to Logan Ray Hall. This is Logan Ray right there, uh, the daughter of James and Stephanie Hall. And uh, I texted James when, I, when he sent me this picture, and I said, thank God for beautiful wives who help create beautiful daughters, because James and I are in the same category. Without a beautiful woman, we're in trouble if our kids just look like us without some mama's beauty. And so um, we're, we're adding that. I feel like we're doing this like, every other week. Like We're a fertile staff bunch right now. And um, we anticipate in nine months, uh, following the end of the Song of Solomon series, for that rate to only grow. Uh, I need to tell you this, uh, as if we called a bass. She was seven pounds, nine ounces. She is 19.5 inches. She's unable to ride any rides at Disney World right now. But that's James and Stephanie Hall. And let me just tell you who James is, because some of you, you don't know him. Um, James is one of our pastor residents, which means this. James had a full-time paying job, and he laid it aside. He quit his job because he feels God's calling him to, the, uh, to be in pastoral ministry. And so for two years, he is raising his own support and he's training and learning how to be a pastor uh, here at the church 1122. And so he quit his job, found out his wife was pregnant. And this is how I know the man's faithful. He didn't go running back. He just kept running towards what God had called him to do. So some of you need to bring some babies, R.S. gift cards up to the church and start the Buy James's Baby a Diaper Fund. And uh, we'll just give those to him and just faithful, faithful man. So uh, here's where we're at. We're in week three of Ephesians. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. Uh, there's also going to be scripture on the screen. There's also going to be scripture in your bulletin handout. We really love the word of God here. It's kind of a big deal to us. And so we just want to dig in. Let me catch you up. Uh, if this is your first week of the three weeks. Uh, we're studying the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is a two-part book. The first part of the book is, is really just the explanation of the gospel. Uh, three or four times, Paul is going to explain, here's what the gospel is. We started a couple weeks ago and talked about that the gospel is at its root, it's God's active pursuit of the elect, that God's choosing to save and he's active uh, and we receive that, that, that God is a good God who's active in pursuing. Last week, we talked about um, grace, that God is, is pursuing us in grace and I actually have a little bit of help. Uh, my three-year-old uh, is going gonna, is gonna to help me out a little bit here and uh, just remind us what we learned last week in Ephesians. Come on, if you don't clap, I'm going to kick you out. Come on, my little three-year-old daughter just sitting in the back seat, you know, she went to Backyard Bible Club and she's just a quote, she's quoting Ephesians 2.8. So I figured we, she would remind us with a childlike faith that what we learned last week was that our salvation is rooted in God's grace through 
faith. And so this week, we're going to dig in. We're still in the first half of the book about the gospel. Starting next week, we're going to start looking towards the implications of the gospel in the second half of Ephesians. But today, we're still in Ephesians 2, uh, verse 11. You guys ready? All right. Anybody in the back, you know, seven rows ready? Anybody ready already? But first 10 or 15 rows are ready. All right. You guys got to sleep in this morning. You've had brunch already. You should be ready to go. Some of you, you're not ready to go because you barely got down last night, but that's all right. We're glad you're here. All right. Therefore, verse 11, therefore. Now the therefore is there for a reason. Uh, Paul is about to walk through uh, the third explanation of the gospel. And he says, therefore, he just finished verses one through 10 and verses one through three of chapter two said this, that you and I, uh, we were wretched, black hearted sinners, dead in our sin. We were children of wrath. We were children of disobedience. And then verse four, it says, but God rich in mercy. So we were dead, but God rich in mercy gives us life. And then verse 10, we were his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul says, therefore, you were dead and God rich in mercy gives us life and not just life, but gives us life with a purpose. And so therefore, since you were dead and you're alive and now you have purpose, Paul goes on to say this, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, great nicknames there, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember. So Paul twice now has said, remember, he says, therefore, since you were dead and now you're alive and you have purpose, remember. And, and they, Paul's not telling these Gentiles, he's not telling this church to remember because they forgot, but Paul's telling, hey, don't forget or remember where you came from. When we hear the gospel, the gospel should remind us that we were once dead in our sins and Christ has given us life, that it is good to remember where we come from so that we really appreciate and know where we're at. So Paul says, remember, verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in this world. So Paul tells this church in Ephesus, he goes, hey, I just want to remind you guys, just don't forget that before the cross, before you met Jesus, before you surrendered your life to Jesus, you were these five things. And it's good for us, church, to remember that these five things are true about every one of us before the cross. That before any of us come to, come to the cross and come to Christ, these five things were true. That there was a time, and he's reminding them, don't forget, there was a time you were, number one, separated from Christ. It literally means you had no contact, you, had, you were independent of Christ, or you were independent of the Messiah. You were independent of the one who gives life. So he's reminding them, don't forget, there was a point in your life where you were without, you, were, you had no contact with life. You had no contact with the one who brings salvation. Second thing is you were alienated. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. He reminds them, hey, don't forget, not only were you separated from the life-giving Messiah, but you were also alienated from Israel. In other words, you had no prophecies. In fact, the, the alienated there actually means you were, you were kind of hostile towards even the promises of Messiah. So, so Paul's would tell them, don't forget, not only did you used to not know Jesus, 
But you used to even be hostile or against the promises or prophecies that there is Jesus. The third thing is this. He said you were strangers of the covenants of promise. In other words, you were outside of any of the promises of a good God in heaven. God had given these promises to the nation of Israel. And these Gentiles that Paul is writing to, these people who were separate from that, they, weren't even, they didn't even get the byproducts of God's goodness. So Paul's saying, look, you, you didn't have life. You were, you didn't even have, you were like, you were hostile to even the promises of Jesus and ultimately even the, just the byproduct of the goodness of God, you just didn't get, you just didn't get that. And the results was this, four is this, you had no hope, you had no hope. And and as I read that this morning, some of you are going, oh, Ryan, that's not who I was, that's that's who I am right now. So we know, we we love the fact that God's made us a movement for all people because I know even in this room right now, there are people sitting right now going, that's why I'm here. Like, I'm here because I have no hope. Like, this is it. If, if this church and Jesus thing don't come through, I, I don't have hope. I've got no hope beyond what I can do with my own hands, and I'm broken, and I'm in a spot where I'm hopeless. And what Paul's telling these people in Ephesus is because that's, that was true about you. And for some of us, even in this room this morning, that's the truth about us right now. And finally, Paul says, and you are without God in the world. Now, now, what that means, literally in the Greek, means you are a passive atheist. All right? There's such thing as an active atheist. An active atheist is someone who says there is no God. All right? And, and we, we even each weekend have the opportunity to kind of sit in worship and gather in worship with people in the room who are active a- atheists. They just said, like, there is no God. I'm just coming here because I'm supporting a friend or I, I want to know more about what these people believe. And there's such thing as active atheism. There's people who just go, I, there is no God. Passive atheism is different. Passive atheism is people who go, there is a God, and I don't even know if the God's knowable, or the God's out there. And, and even these Gentiles, there were, um, they had the pantheon of gods. They had gods on every corner. They had temples and Ephesus of, to God. And what Paul is saying is, hey, you thought you had God, but you didn't. Like, you thought you were doing everything, but you were passive. Like, you, you, you were pursuing God, but you just couldn't find him. That for us, some of us in this room, some of the stories that you were sitting today and you have been trying to find God and you have not yet found him. So Paul reminds them, hey, don't forget, you used to be separated, alienated, like you, were, you didn't have God. And he says, remember this, why? Because for the good news to be good, it needs the bad news to be compared to. Like if you get bad news, you need to know the bad news so you see the good news. So Paul says, Hey, don't forget how bad it was, right? Don't forget you used to be a stranger and an alien. Verse 13. But now, but now, several times in the book of Ephesians, you get these big butts, right? And I cannot lie. Other brothers can't deny, right? Big butts, verse 13, big butts, right? He goes, but now, it happened earlier in verse four. It's gonna happen again later in the text where Paul says, you and I, we like big butts. Why? Because we used to be dead, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Paul says, hey, don't forget where you came from because where you came from was far off. And because of Jesus, you now can be close. That you and I used to be far off from God, but because of what Jesus did, we now have nearness to our very creator. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace. I think that's one of the most profound statements in all of scripture. I think to say he himself, Jesus is our peace, is one of the most profound statements throughout the entire 
Scripture. Here's why. There's two things we have to see here. First of all, this is this. Um, the idea of peace. We have to understand this word peace. Here's why. Paul's about to spend the next few verses unpacking the gospel, explaining gospel. And as he explains the gospel, he's going to say the gospel is the advancement of peace. Like he's gonna, he taught earlier in chapter 1 that gospel is the activity of a loving God in heaven. He Then he talked about it in verse chapter, or the first part of chapter 2, that, that the gospel is fueled by mercy and grace. And now here at the end of chapter 2, Paul's about to go on this explanation of the gospel. Where he goes, well, look, if you're going to get the gospel, you've got to get peace. Now, there's two words for peace that, are, that would be used in this first century church. One was the Hebrew form, shalom. The, the Hebrew form of the word peace, shalom, it means wholeness, it means perfection, it means lacking nothing. We see it throughout, the, uh, we see it in, in the beginning of Genesis that God created the heavens and the earth and it was shalom, it was good, it was perfect, it was peaceful, it did not lacking, lack anything, nothing was out of place, it was whole and full, right? The other, uh, the other form of the word is a Greek word, arene, which means freedom from worry. Both of them mean peace, but they have these two connotations of being whole, being perfect, lacking nothing. And the Greek version means kind of uh, freedom from worry. That there is nothing to worry about. There's nothing to fear. That there is no anxiety to be had. So I think these two words ultimately work together. Here's what I mean. Um, if you were to go to Maple Street Biscuit Company... And you were to get yourself a biscuit. I'm not talking about, like, if you hadn't been there, you don't even know what I'm speaking of. Like, the Lord, Jesus eats at Maple Street Bakery, right? If you were to get yourself a Maple Street Bakery, just biscuit, it's just like, there's biscuit, and then there's a layer of meat, and then there's a layer of cheese, and then there's a layer of a different type of meat, praise Jesus, and then there's a layer of, like, just gravy, like, just, I think, is meat gravy? I think it's, like, pureed meat, and then there's a biscuit on top of that, right? And you eat that, and then the owner comes over and says, hey, have you ever tried the icing, pecan, whatever it's called? I have tried it, but I'd try it again. And then he brings three of those bad boys out and sits them down in front of you. And you tell your daughter you can't have any more because daddy's about to do work here. And you get full. I'm talking about full. You don't get up from the table and you are, when you get up from the table, you are not worried about dinner. You're not worried about eating ever again. The only thing you're worried about is the scale tomorrow morning. But when you are full, you're without worry. Like when you get your big bonus, like your big bonus check, right? You get this big commission. You don't get in the car and go, oh, my car's empty. How will I fill it up? No, you just got a big bonus check. You don't care. You're filling it up and going in and got inside and getting a Mountain Dew, right? Some of you are college kids and you don't know how you're going to fill your gas tank up, right? I don't either. You got to figure that one out. I'm not here to solve all your problems, right? But there's just this, this wholeness. When we are whole and full, we lack nothing. And when we lack nothing, we worry for nothing. So we got to get that concept of peace in our head first, right? The second thing is this, is Paul says, Jesus is our peace. Very profound. You see, we live in a culture that says if you need peace, there are actions in which you create peace for yourself, right? There are actions. We, we live in a culture, we, our mindset naturally, just the centrality, the ego centrality we have says, if you have stress, then you have to create more activities to handle your stress, right? Which does what? It just creates more stress, what, what Paul's saying here is not even that Jesus, his work is our peace. Now, what Jesus does on the cross creates peace for us, but Paul's not even saying what Jesus is going to do is our peace. What Paul says is the person of Jesus is the one who provides us wholeness in which we lack nothing. Jesus does that. 
The peace that passes all understanding is not an action or a state of being. It's a person. Jesus himself eternally is the wholeness we all long for. And he is the freedom from worry that we all desire. If peace is an action, that, that, if peace is simply something that causes action, we long for the next action. But if peace is a person who is eternally whole, then we are eternally satisfied. That Jesus himself, the person of Jesus, is the wholeness that we long for. It's the person of Jesus. He's the only person that can provide a fulfillment that leaves us never wanting again. Let's keep reading verse 14. He himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace. So what does he do? Well, Jesus is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the laws of commandments expressed in ordinances. Sometimes we read Bible verses and we go, I think I'll just go to the next one, right? No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to get us through this one, right? He who has made us both one. I'm going to talk about what both one means in, in a lot of detail today. But what is, how did he make us both one? I'm going to get to that in a second, but we've got to understand this. First, he, he made us both one because he broke down in his flesh a dividing wall of hostility. That there was some wall of hostility that was opposing peace. And Jesus, in his flesh, broke that down. How did he do that? Well, he broke that down by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Or he made ineffective or powerless the the hostility that was brought by the law. Now, what's this dividing wall? Because understanding the dividing wall is going to open up the rest of this text for us. Well, there's three different ways to look at what Paul's talking about when he says dividing wall. Either, number one, he's talking about the political, social tensions of the Jewish-Gentile uh, arrangement. In Jerusalem, and really in this part of the world, there was a lot of hostility politically and socially between the Jewish people and the Gentile people, right? And Gentile just means everybody else, right? Loosely translated, everybody else, all right? And so Jewish people and Gentiles, there was some tension there. And so maybe Paul was saying that that tension was solved, okay? The second thing to look at maybe is that Paul was talking about the purity laws that we find in the Old Testament that separated the righteous or the religious and everyone else. There's all these different purity laws about uh, dietary laws and uh, clothing laws and uh, laws about how you could cut your hair and when you couldn't cut your hair and all these Old Testament laws uh, that separated the people of Israel from the rest of the world. Old Covenant, Old Testament. The third thing was this, is that literally there was walls at the temple that drew a line between the priests, the Gentiles, and the Jews. Um, as I look at the text, I think all three have, have validity. And here's why. I think the temple was a picture of the law which created the tensions among the people. So, and we need to do a little bit of a, a architecture here. Now, I'm not an architect, so I'm just going to draw boxes. And if you want to see like what the temple really looked like, you got to Google that because we're not going that far here this morning, right? So, when we talk about the first century temple, right, which literally had walls, you, you got well, there's three different uh, things we need to talk about. One was the actual temple. So, in the middle of this of this kind of temple courtyards and stuff, there was a temple. Now, what you need to know about the temple is that God's presence resided there. There was also this curtain, this veil, that divided the holy of the holies from the rest of the temple. Now, this is important because the holy of the holies, this spot, that's where God's presence was. 
And once a year, the high priest, the number one guy, he would put a rope around his waist. He'd go into the Holy of Holies. He would make sacrifices for all of Israel, right? And then he would come out. Now, they had to tie the rope around him because if he went in and had not handled all of his impurities, if he had not done all the uh, rituals to make sure that he was pure before the Lord, uh, God would just kill him dead and they'd have to pull the rope out, right? And then the number two guy would get to go in. Being the number two guy is not that bad until you hear until the rope, <laughs> you got to pull the rope out. And you're pulling the rope out going, I'm next. <laughs> Oops, all right. So there was a holy of holies, there was a temple. Only the priest could go into the temple. Only the high priest could go back into the holy of holies. All right, very important. All right, surrounding the temple was what we call the inner courts. Now, if there's inner courts, there's also, all right, half of y'all were, are not with me yet, but we'll get you there, I promise, right? So you've got the temple with the Holy of Holies. You've got the inner court. You've got the outer court. Now, this is important because in the inner court, there was this imaginary line in which the Jewish women couldn't go past this line, but the Jewish men were allowed to get a little closer to the temple, right? So you've got priests in here. You've got Jewish men. You've got Jewish women, right? And then that's the inner court. And then you've got the outer court, which where the Gentiles would go. Now, if this was, if we were still in first century church, all the women would have to stay in the lobby and all the men would come in. That's just how they had it divided. I, praise God we're not there. there. Praise God for the cross. This is easier to preach to pretty faces than all the ugly faces, right? So that's God's grace to us. So the, the Jewish people were allowed to go in the inner court. The Gentiles were allowed to come in the outer court. And then there was even really a third class of citizen who was not even allowed in the temples at all. If a Jewish man and a Gentile woman were to have a child, that child would be considered unclean and cast out of the entire court, of the entire outer court, right? Um, there's a guy in Acts we meet named Timothy. Two books of the Bible were written to him. He was one of these third-class citizens who was not even allowed into the outer court to the temple. But Jesus changed his life, and then he you know, became a book of the Bible, right? So here's what's going on. Here's what I think's happening. Here's what Paul's talking about. There were literally dividing walls. There were literally dividing walls. There were, uh, there were figuratively dividing walls. That what, what Jesus is going to do, he's going to, div- to deal with the division between mankind. Right? So we've got to keep going in verse 15. By abolishing the law, the commands expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So, here's, so Jesus is our peace. He abolishes the law. The first thing he does in abolishing the law is he gets rid of the division between men, between men, women, Jew, Gentiles. That one new man has been made. Not like Gentiles plus Jews make this like kind of third meshing, but God puts all through the cross, what Jesus does is put all mankind on a level playing field. That all of us now have one problem. You see, in first century, there was a couple of problems. There was this division between the Jewish people and the Gentiles, and even another division between the Holy of Holies and Jews. So the first thing we see that God, that Jesus does in dealing with peace is he gets rid of the hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles, and he puts all of humanity on one level playing field. And we all have a common problem, and this is our common problem. You and I are sinners. That what Jesus does is he puts everyone on a level playing field and everyone now has a common problem. Romans says it this way, that that you and I 
have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For all have sinned, right? And if you're part of the all, which you are, we have all sinned. We've all missed the mark. We've all fallen short of the perfect holiness of God. And not only did Jesus put all us the same level of playing field that we all know how we all have the same problem, no matter where we were born, no matter where our social economic status is, no matter anything, the good news about being on the same playing field is we all now have the same solution, the cross. Like we all have the same problem. It's sin. It's that we've missed the the perfection of God. We've missed his holiness. And at the same time, we all have the same solution and it's the cross. This is why the church 1122, we say, hey, we're a movement for all people. We, we're a movement for all people because of what Jesus did on the cross. Like if we were to do like just a quick survey, a little quick poll, don't raise your hands, don't tell on yourself. And I said, hey, if you uh, raise your hand, if you grew up in church and you like never missed Sunday school, you were like, in, you were like the leader of your confirmation class, like just raise your hand if, if like you knew where every hymn was in the Baptist hymnal or you were like up and down knees, you knew when to stood. Like raise your hand if you even went to Catholic church this morning before you came here. Like some of us would raise our hand and we'd be real proud. And I said, all right, now some of y'all raise your hand if, if your friends found out you were in church right now, they would cuss because they don't believe it, right? And somebody's like, yeah, my friend's right next to me cussing because I'm here next to it, right? And so we're all over the map, right? Like, like how many of y'all grew up in my world where like I would go to the McDonald's, which is what you did in Rinkin, Georgia. You went to McDonald's and then you went to Walmart. And that's called a date, all right? And so that's where I grew up. But I would go to Walmart. I'd go to McDonald's with my family when I was like nine years old, right? And uh, I'd have to sneak to the Coke machine. You know why? Because I was drinking mixed drinks. A little bit of Coke, a little bit of orange drink, a little bit of Mellow Yellow. I thought I was living on the edge with a mixed drink. Some of you brought mixed drinks in this morning, right? So we are all over the map. It's good. I remember uh, Pastor Joby and I were teaching one time at a youth retreat, and I said, guys, let me tell you, I I stole a matchbox car from my friend, and I realized hell is real, and I need a savior. Like, the the weight of stealing a matchbox car changed my life forever, and I'm sure Joby stole a real real car. (laughs) And I was right. (laughs) So if your pastors can come from the world of, I stole a matchbox car, and I stole somebody's Corvette, and we both meet Jesus in the same way, when we say we're a movement for all people, we mean it. We are. It does not matter where you came from. All that matters is where you're going. And we're a movement for all people. So the first thing that Jesus does on the cross is he makes peace between man. He puts all mankind, all of humanity on a level playing field. We all have the same problem. We all have the same solution. We all have sin. We all need a savior. Verse 16. And, so Jesus put man on a level playing field. Verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Thereby killing the hostility. See, here's what happens. When the first thing Jesus does is he puts all of humanity on a level playing field. All of humanity has the same problem. We, because of our sin, cannot get into the presence of God. When he puts all of humanity on the same playing field, he handles the hostility between the religious and the rest. And now all of us have one hostility we still need to overcome. That's that we are not at peace with our creator. The veil is still there. There's still a separation between us and the presence of God. Matthew 27 says this, Jesus is on the cross. And this is what it says, verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. 
Here's what Jesus did on the cross. When Jesus went to the cross, all of us still had this one problem. When he went to the cross, he put all of us on this level playing field that we need a savior. And then Jesus goes to the cross, dies on the cross. It says literally that the veil was ripped in two. And now for the first time ever, you didn't need to go to a priest to get to God. Uh, Peter says it this way. We are the priesthood of believers. And now because of what Jesus did on the cross, his blood allows you and I to go straight to our creator. That we didn't need a religious system to create a way for us to get to God. That what Jesus did on the cross is he first dealt with the hostility or the division between the religious and the rest of humanity. The second thing he did is he deals with the hostility. He deals with the division between mankind and their creator God. And what he does on the cross is he rips the veil and he says, look, if you're far from God, if you're near from God, there's one way and it's through Jesus to get to God. Let's keep going. Jesus does something else, right? He, he, he is peace. He, he creates peace. And then verse 17, this is really good for you and I. And he came and he preached what? He preached what? All right, you're saying peace peacefully. I see what you're doing there. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. So not only did Jesus come as peace, not only did Jesus come and make peace through the cross, but Jesus resurrects, he comes out of the tomb, victorious over death, and proclaims wholeness to anyone who is far and anyone who is near. What he's literally, Paul saying is this, is there are people who are far from God and there are people who are near from God. And when Jesus came out of the tomb, his proclamation of wholeness was for everybody. There was no longer a caste system in heaven. There's no longer a caste system of religiosity. Now, these, ver- these words, uh, peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near, actually come out of Isaiah chapter 57. So Paul's quoting Old Testament. Here's, let me read Isaiah 57 to you. For I, and this is God speaking, for I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I have made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. And I have seen his ways. So God's talking about his children. He says, I'm angry with them. Like, I'm angry with my children. If you have children, especially if you have toddlers, you know like your heart like is beating in the same heartbeat as God right now. Like, I love my kids, but I... I might send them to meet them if they keep talking back to mom like that, right? So God's looking at his kids and he's got that same kind of tender, fatherly moment where he says, you're my children, but I'm, I'm angry with you. And God disciplines them. He even hides his face. He even gets that moment where he says, I just need to kind of pull back a little bit or I may end humanity. And God says, I am upset with you. I am angry with you. In verse 18, he says this, I know your ways. And, and the next few words are huge. But I want you to know before I read them that God could say, I know your ways and I'm gonna get rid of you. I know your ways and I'm gonna discipline you. I know your ways and I'm no longer yours. Like God could say that. But he says this, he says, I know your ways and another big but, but I will heal him. I know his ways. I know he's been a rebel. I know he has attacked me. I know he's, he's been disobedient and backslidden. Some of you are in this room this morning going, oh my goodness, why do I got to read the word backsliding? That's where I've been for the last 10 years of my life. Because this, God knows where you're at. It is not a surprise to him. But here's his promise. I will heal you. 
I will lead him and restore comfort to him to be his mourners and creating fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near. And says the Lord, and I will heal him. Here's three things God knows. First of all, God knows the level of discipline your heart can handle. And he knows the level of discipline that your heart needs. Like God knows the level of discipline that your heart can handle. And he knows the level of discipline that you need to reach brokenness. You see, the proclamation here of, in Isaiah is that wholeness, wholeness is to the person who's far from God and the person who's near God. And we don't truly understand our, in, our super deep need for wholeness until we understand our brokenness. And we have a God in heaven who knows how much discipline your heart can handle and knows how much discipline your heart needs. That God says these people, they, they've backslided and I've, I've, I've disciplined them but now I'm going to heal them. That God knows your brokenness and knows the level of brokenness you need to understand your need for wholeness. The second thing is this, that not only does God know the level of of discipline, God also knows that he is the only one who can actually heal your brokenness. God knows that he is the only one. He's the only one who can heal those who mourn. And third is this, is that God knows, we should know, that God is the one who creates the spirit of repentance that even leads to healing. What does that mean? It means this, that that when God is promising peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near, the ones of us that sit in this room this morning who are hopeless, God knows that you're hopeless. And God knows the level of hopelessness that your heart can handle and he allows it. Why? Because he also knows that he's the one who can heal you and he knows that in your brokenness, he's the one that's gonna create in you a spirit of repentance that leads to his healing. And when you hear peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near, what I want you to hear this is that you are never too far from the arms of God to reach you and heal you. Like there's nothing you can do. He's already sent his son to the cross to pay the price of death. There is nothing you've done that can outrun the long healing arms of God who declares to you, I know you've backslidden. I know you've run away. I know you need healed. And he is the one who declares to us wholeness. That that's God's word for us. So wherever we're at, far or near, that God's the one who brings wholeness. God's the one who brings fulfillment. God's the only one who can take you to a place where you no longer have a need for worry. Verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Through him we both have access to the Spirit and the Father. So through Jesus, we have access to our Heavenly Father. That the Holy Spirit, this is the picture of the Trinity, that through God the Son, we have access in the Spirit to the Father. That we both. Now, what are we talking about with both? Well, here's what we need to know, that we come to the cross really from one of two camps. There's one or two major camps that we live in before the cross. Some of us live over here in this camp, and some of us live over here in this camp, right? Now, let's just give these two camps names. Let's call this one the rebel, and let's call this one the religious, or we really could call it the self-righteous. 
That when Christ came to save both of us, what, what he's talking about is there's religious and there's righteous. In first century, there was Jewish and Gentile. There were the religious people and there were the, uh, the rebellious people. And for us today, it's still true that we come to Christ in one of two camps. Let me, let me talk about this. This is, this is the rebellious camp. Right, this is the irreligious camp. This is the, this is the type of person, and your heart's going to kind of tend towards one of these, the person who says, look, uh, I determine my own truth. Look, this, this Bible, it's good and all, but I decide what's true. Right? The, the, the aim or the goal of this person is really pleasure. Like you can, you can treat your family however you want to treat them. You can put whatever you want to in your body. You can do your taxes and work to whatever degree of integrity you want to. Your orientation is whatever you want it to be. Your activity is whatever you want it to be. You can do whatever you want as long as you feel like at the end of the day you can look in the mirror and go, was that good for you? And there's, there's some of us who come from this world. We just kind of live in this like hedonistic world that says as long as I'm pleased, as long as I'm pleasured, I feel good. And you've made the world revolve around you. Your God is you. Your God is your comfort, is your feelings. And in this rebellious, irreligious world, what you've said is, I I don't even know if I even need Jesus. I'm good on my own. Now, this other group over here, call them the religious, the self-righteous. I am the uh, former president. I retired from the group when I met Jesus. And uh, here's, here's what this world is. It's moralistic. It's legalistic. It's, there are rules by which we should be moral and we do them. And I'm a good person because I'm, I do all the right deeds. Now, when it comes to God, we think this, I can get myself into heaven. Like I am good enough to get myself into heaven. There is a certain amount of good that is good enough, right? We begin to talk about how we, um, how we, you know, we walked the aisle, we attended confirmation, we went to all the Sunday school classes, we, we, we've never cussed, we've never watched movies that are rated R except for the Passion of the Christ, but that's okay because Jesus was in it and we, and they didn't cuss in it, they just talked about Jesus. And so we have all these religious, legalistic rules that says, I am good with God because I am really good. There's two types of people in this world who really need Jesus. Some who think they already have them and some who don't give a rip about them. Like that's the, the people in our world that, that, that you and I, are. we've grown out of one of these camps. That, that's the camps. That's the both that we come from. The, my own truth determines my happiness and my own ability determines my righteousness. We call it self-righteous. That is not a good thing. Here's why. You can't make yourself righteous. If you could, we don't need God. Like, if you can make yourself righteous, you don't need a Savior. See, here's the big idea. The cross is the only answer for the religious and the rebel. That the cross is the only answer for the religious and the rebel. And here's what Jesus did. Jesus allowed both of us to come to the cross no matter what. That there are some who have just lived in this world that says, hey, there's no truth. Truth is what I want it to be. Like my, my have, you may have not said it in that philosophical statement, but you said, I'm going to do what I want to do and make sure, I, make sure I enjoy it. And for us that live in this rebel world, this rebellious world, this irreligious world, what we need to know is that there is a truth, there is a standard, it is perfection, and we can't get to it. We can't attain it. That the truth is based on who God's character is. And we begin to hear the truth and go, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And that's where Jesus goes, no, no, you're not. For the person who's far off and the person who's near, through the cross, 
we get Jesus. And then there's this other world who has just staked their entire existence on the truth, on the teachings, on what we're supposed to do, and have never actually engaged grace. And you know what the answer for them is? The cross. The answer for the rebel and the religious is the cross. And may I add this? The, the answer for the rebel and the religious is the cross. The answer for the righteous is always the cross. The answer is only the cross for the rebel. The answer is only the cross for the religious. The answer is always the cross for the righteous. This is what I don't want us to do, church. I don't want us to come from an irreligious, rebellious background, meet Jesus, and then somehow think we need to overcorrect and begin to earn or maintain our salvations by our actions. The cross saves you. The cross keeps us saved. We don't graduate the cross. We don't graduate the gospel. I also don't want to see us people come from a legalistic background, meet Jesus, and then go on this like cheap and grace frenzy in which we try to just live like the world. Like we want to live in the middle of these. I have friends who, as I listen to their story and listen to their background, man, they can tell the stories, like the kind that make you blush, like like, you, you're like grown men going, oh my goodness, I don't think if my daddy knew I was hanging out with you, he'd let me. Like, you know, like that's just kind of like, wow, he really, you really got the world, didn't you? You got it all. And they come and they meet Jesus and they're radically saved. And then a few months later, they become so legalistic, they're so boring. That's not the cross. It's not come and meet Jesus and then think every bit of fun is of the devil. No, this person lived for their pleasure. I want this person to live for the pleasure of the cross now. See, the joy that's found in the cross is greater than the happiness of this world. Now, I also don't want to see this. I've got friends who grew up so legalistic uh, that they, they, they once forbid anything that smelled like alcohol, and now they can't forego it. Like people that used to grow up like me, they didn't drink IBC root beer because it was in a beer bottle. I'm not kidding. That's not like a sermon illustration. That was my life growing up, right? I've seen people who've just come, and they forbid so much legalistically that now they just, they just go, they, they can't forego anything. You see, the answer for the rebel and the religious is always the cross. That your pleasure would not be about your pleasure, but his pleasure. That your behavior, that your righteousness is not rooted in your behavior, but in his behavior. That the cross is the only answer for the religious and the rebel. And the cross is always the answer for the righteous. It's not your work. It's not your truth. It's his. So what do we do with this? Verse 19. Verse 19, so, so then. So Paul is going to give us some consequences now. In other words, Paul's going to actually begin to shift the, the, to the second half of Ephesians now where he's going to start giving us implications of the gospel. He says, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Literally, he says this, you're no longer second-rate citizens. Like you're no longer second-class citizens. Citizens, You're no longer aliens. Literally, the word aliens means like you no longer have homeless hearts. He goes, no longer, you're no longer second-class citizens. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Here's what he says. You're no longer second-class citizens. You're first-class citizens in the kingdom of God. He goes, you're no longer homeless in your heart, but now your heart, you have found a home and it is in the household of God. Now here's the implications of this. This is, this is, 
this is very important. So when Paul says you're a part of the household of God, this is what he's saying. There's three implications of what it meant to be part of a household in the first century that rang true today. Number one is this. If you were a member of a household, you had refuge and protection. But to be a member of the household of God means that you have refuge and protection, not in the action of someone, but in the person and the wholeness of Jesus. That in our world, as we live in, in a world that, that creates for us uh, stress and anxiety and, and storms and the storms of life come, the first thing we need to know about what Christ has done on the cross and the peace that he gives us is that he gives us refuge and protection in the household of God. The second thing is this, it's identity. Like the second thing that goes with being a part of a household is identity, that your identity is not in your behavior, your identity is not in your pleasures, your identity, my identity is in the cross. That when we become part of the household of God, I'm not a father, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a husband, I am the Lord's. Like I am Ryan of the household of God and because of my identity being rooted in the wholeness And in the perfection of Jesus, I can become a better father. I can be a better husband. I can love people like a pastor should love. I can work as if I'm working under the Lord because my identity is rooted in the wholeness of Jesus. The third thing is this, security and belonging. Security and belonging. When we are a part of a household of God, we find our belonging in that household. We find our connectivity in that household. One of the reasons why I think that the local church is the hope of the world is because in the household of God, in the local church, is the only place the hopeless of the world can find belonging. It's the only place that the hopeless of the world can find refuge in the presence of an almighty God. That what Christ did on the cross, when he broke down the divisions between different Different, different people and, and broke down the divisions between humanity and broke down the divisions between us and God and heaven. What he did was create for us a place where we would belong, have protection, and find our identity. Verse 20. This household is being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That we are being built into joining together with one another, being built into the temple. The cross changes everything. See, God no longer dwells in a physical temple, but when the cross happens, God begins to dwell in the hearts and in the presence of the church. And when we say church, I don't mean the building, but God dwells amongst his people. That the cross changes everything. That it breaks down the hostility between men. It breaks down the hostility between God. And God is the God who dwells in his people through the Holy Spirit. So what's our response? Here's what we believe is that when the gospel is presented, we believe every one of us will respond. Like every single person in here will respond. All right, you may respond positively, you may respond negatively, but no one responds neutrally to the gospel. So I've got a couple of things for us to think about as we respond. One is this. For some of us, our response this morning needs to be to receive the gift of peace of the cross. Like some of us are sitting here this morning, we're hopeless. And we've tried to do it our way. We've tried everything we can think of. And yet, we're still not whole. We're still not fulfilled. We're still 
We've got this distance between us and God in which the Bible would call sin. That there's a perfect God in heaven and that our sin keeps us at a distance from him. And we need to do what the, what the Bible talks about when, when they say that we would receive the gift of God. That Christ went to the cross and died on the cross. He lived a perfect life. And what he offers us is to take the sin, to take the barrier between us and God, to remove it, to pay the penalty of death on the cross, and then give us his righteousness, which makes us whole and makes us satisfied with God. So some of us today, what we need to do in response to the gospel is receive the peace that Christ offers on the cross. For some of us, and maybe for a second I can just talk to, to, to believers in this room and, and, and all believers, but maybe even specifically believers who say, hey, this is my church, this is my home. Um, not only do we receive the gift of peace found in the cross, but now we should live accordingly with one another because of the peace of the cross. Here's how. Well, 59 times throughout the Bible, uh, it says that we should something one another. We should love one another, serve one another, carry one another's burdens, pray for one another, right? Mourn with one another, rejoice with one another. The Bible says that, that when Christ saves us, he doesn't just save us for individualism or isolation. He saves us for one anotherism. That when we understand the, the peace of the cross and what Christ has done for us between our relationship with us and God, it should fuel us to love humanity because the cross is not just for you. The cross is for the nations. And so when we realize my peace, my, my hostility has been dealt with by Jesus on the cross, it should compel us to then love the world, to love one another in such a way that says, hey, and Christ can do it for you. That Christ can do it for you. One of the ways we have an opportunity to, to, to walk that out here at the Church of 1122 is called covenant membership. And we're, we're finally to the point now where we're ready to begin to run out, roll out like a covenant membership. When I say we're a movement for all people, we mean that. Like you don't have to become a covenant member. It's not a requirement. In fact, actually covenant membership actually is, is when one person goes, okay, I love Jesus. I love this church. And I want to love Jesus with the people of this church to the point that I'm ready to commit and hold one another accountable and walk together. See, when you become a covenant member here, you actually get responsibilities, not rights. Okay, there ain't no discounted wedding prices. In fact, you got to start parking out by Winn-Dixie and soon you're going to start parking out by Publix, right? When you say, I want to be a covenant member, what you're saying is, I'm running after Jesus. I'm going to do it here at the Church 1122, and I want to be part of helping one another get it. So I want to walk into that level of accountability, and I want to serve the people that show up every weekend. And so we're going to start rolling out covenant membership as a picture of what it means, an opportunity of what it means to love one another because the peace of Christ passes, transcends all understanding, and that because of what Jesus did for me, I want to do for others with others in the name of Jesus. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Not because this is like a magical position. I just want to give you a little room to just answer a couple questions. Because you're going to respond to the gospel one way or the other this morning. I just want to ask you a few questions. First of all, I want to ask you this. If you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, and you come in here and you're, you're hopeless and you're, you're longing and you you know that that is what you need to do, then I want to ask you to do that. I want to ask you to receive the peace of the cross. And I'm going to tell you how to do this. Where you're at, you just tell God. You just tell God, I'm hopeless without you. You tell God, I'm broken without you. 
And I know that what Jesus did on the cross was give me wholeness. I don't even know how. I don't even have to explain it. I just know that it's time to surrender my life to Jesus. And if that's you right now, I just want you to tell God. And as you tell God, I just want you to raise your hand because we want to pray for you. Raising your hand doesn't save you, but it just... It just allows us to pray for you. Just raise your hand and go, I'm surrendering my life to Jesus right now, and I want you to pray for me. I want you to, to be in partnership with me as I'm, as I'm surrendering my life to Jesus. Just to raise your hand and just, just tell God, I'm, I'm surrendering my life to Jesus right now. I'm embracing the peace of the cross right now. That peace is yours right now. That, that peace, Jesus himself the wholeness of your life. He is yours right now. That he went to the cross to to tear away the dividing wall between you and God. And right now, Jesus is yours. He is your peace. For others of us, I want us to ask this. As we start to let the, the concept, the idea that the cross is the peace, that the cross is always the answer. Some of us need to engage this response time to confess and repent that we've been trying to live by cheap grace or we've been trying to maintain our salvation by our actions and we just need to repent and remember that Christ and Christ alone is the wholeness. That it's not our behaviors, it's not our pleasures, it's his behavior, it's his pleasure. And then finally, as we respond, I want to give some of us the opportunity to respond because you have not been loving one another. And it might be time for you to to grab someone's hand and bring them to the altar and and pray for forgiveness and pray for them. You might need to repent and say, I have not been living as I've been living as if if there is hostility between me and someone else. And Jesus has handled that. There's freedom. There's wholeness between us and God. There's wholeness between us and others. So I'm going to ask you to stand and I'm going to pray and we're going to have just a time to respond. So would you stand with me while I pray? God, we love you. God, I thank you so much for the, for, uh, the men and women who, who raised their hand and surrendered their life to you in this moment. God, would you just, God, would you be so real in this moment to them? And God, I pray for us as a church, as we read the gospel and we hear that the cross is always the answer, that we would repent of anywhere where we've tried to add extra answers to the cross. And God, would we repent of where we have not loved one another by the peace and the wholeness given us to us in the cross. And God, most importantly, would we, would we just rejoice? Would we just rejoice in this, in this time of how merciful the cross is? That your bloody death, a violent death on the cross is actually what brought peace and wholeness to us. God, as we worship, we just pray that you would dwell among your people. It's in your name we pray.